where the promise is realized that the nations will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. And your glory will fill heaven and earth. And all who are yours will have an eternity to delight in you and to worship you. And Lord, that's something that begins now. It's so hindered by our flesh, by our sin, our unbelief, our weakness. But we have the first fruits of your spirit. We have the the beginning, the, the beginning taste of your goodness and of your glory and help us to hunger more for it, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to hunger and thirst for a greater and greater knowledge of you and lives that mirror and reflect your own character and keep us faithful. And Lord, we know that that is a promise that those whom you've saved, you will keep until you deliver us safely home in your presence, blameless with great joy. And a part of that that you use is the gathering of your people the hearing of your word, and even the Lord's Supper. So to that end, prepare our hearts through your word in these next few moments that you might be glorified in us and through us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, we'll go ahead and open up your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're coming back to uh, Christ's message, the message of the risen Christ to the church at Sardis, to the church at Sardis. I was commenting to Trish the other day, I've often thought this, we have uh, in an area where my parents live a few churches that are named Sardis, Sardis Church. And I've always found that interesting because Christ's message to the church at Sardis is not an encouraging one. And I thought, why would you want to name your church Sardis? But uh, they do, and there it goes. But we are finding ourselves in the message of Christ to the church at Sardis. And in some ways, while each of them applies to the church throughout the ages, and these churches are representative of the church, uh, Sardis in some ways uh, really fits the bill for much of what we see in the church today, the professing church of Jesus Christ. It, it's beginning to hit home even more and more. And you'll notice as Christ is giving these messages to the churches, while each one is significant and each one has a, a significant message to us, there is sort of a, a, a movement, and there is a movement from, uh, in some ways, uh, one of the better of the churches that receive a, a rebuke from Christ, the church at Ephesus, but as he goes through each church, of course, uh, Pergamum and Philadelphia don't receive a rebuke, but from the churches that Christ rebukes, it gets deeper and deeper, they get worse and worse as you go on. Until you finally get to the church at Sardis now, and he says that he's going to identify them as being in the most dangerous of spiritual conditions, and later he's going to end on the church of Laodicea, whom he's ready to spit out of his mouth. And that's just sort of the nature of it, that even in the glory of the church, and even in the wonder of the church, and even in the fact that Christ is fulfilling his promise to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the ultimate glory of Christ in his redeeming work and in his people and in his church is a yet future day because while we're here, true believers groan and then false believers go from bad to worse. In other words, sin is still present. And that's why we long for the day that it is eradicated. And so we see that even in the message of Christ to the churches. And there is a couple of great themes. I remember hearing this in a sermon many, many years ago. But there are a couple of great themes that run throughout Scripture. One of those themes is, of course, of God's redeeming work, of God's salvation of a people from the clutches of their sin and from the condemnation of sin. And another great theme that runs throughout Scripture is that of false belief. 
Is that a false belief? All the way from Genesis to Revelation, we are confronted with the reality that it is possible to have some kind of identification with God, some kind of external commitment to God, and yet not know him and not know his saving grace. And that is at the heart of the message that Christ gives to the church at Sardis that we'll be looking at this week and next week as we continue on. So let's begin by reading his letter, so Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so is the message of the risen Christ, who is even right now at the right hand of the Father, to the church at Sardis. Now, by way of introduction, we noticed last week just the context of the church and how much the context of the church set their own self-identity, sort of their self-conscious identity, and how it was appropriate to the spiritual dangers that they found themselves in. First of all, we noted that the church at Sardis was a church that had a lot of wealth, that had a lot of ease. Now, that was characteristic of other places as well, but particularly of Sardis. It It was a city that had a history of an abundance an abundance of wealth as it was a center of trade even in the Roman era as we noted it was a center of five conjoining roads so there was a lot of traffic back and forth there was uh, in its history supposedly even that it was a river that uh, delivered gold dust through it that's you know debatable who knows but it was nonetheless a city that was marked by great wealth by great affluence and by great ease it had as a part of its history and a part of its national identity as well uh, a history of not of being overconfident, of not paying attention to their weaknesses and of being overcome. And we noted two particular historical events where the city of Sardis was overthrown, the stronghold of Sardis, the original city that was up on the hill in the picture that we showed. And it was overcome because they were overconfident. And so they didn't look at their flank. They had a, part, a stronghold that had a high cliff before it. They thought they were safe. They didn't really guard it. And two times in their history, they were overtaken and the city was overthrown because of this overconfidence. But that being said, the city did have a, was one of the oldest cities and it had a long history, but by the time we come to the city in the first century AD to the letter of uh, John in Revelation and the message of Christ, it was a city that lived largely on past laurels, on a past glory. It wasn't what it formerly was. It wasn't the significant military outpost that had defined it for much of its origin and even through its early history. But it was still a city of wealth, and it was still a city of reputation. We noted as well that they had a patron deity named Sibel, and it was particularly known, although there was this aspect in, in a lot of the deities of the Greek pantheon, but particularly with this deity, there was this understanding of bringing life out of death. 
So we know that the very context then of the church set, uh, or of the city sets up the message for, of Christ to the church. Because as is often the case, the church doesn't always escape the culture, does it? And characteristics of the culture find their way, easily seep into the church and they find their way into and among the people of God. And so this is who Christ is addressing, this church. And he begins, secondly, the second point, by identifying a certain aspect of his character, a certain aspect of his nature, certain realities about himself that he wants to establish as the fount out of which of the address that he's going to give to this church. And so we note, secondly, the character of Christ. And he identifies himself in this way in verse 1, the second half. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And as with the other churches, Christ is drawing on previous statements here in the seven spirits of God. He's drawing on what was said earlier in the introduction to Revelation in verse 4 of chapter 1 where there are identified the seven spirits of God. And we spent some time on that back then. John to the seven churches in his address, he says that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And then the seven stars we were introduced to in the vision of Christ that was given to John in verse 16 of chapter one and verse 20, there the stars are identified as the seven messengers, the seven angels. He says the seven stars in verse 20 are the angels of the seven churches. And so he's drawing on this previous imagery. And as noted before, as with each of the churches, each description of Christ that stands as the introduction to the letter highlights a key aspect that is appropriate to the situation of that church and to the message of that church. And so we want to ask just two simple questions on this point. One, what is the meaning of the imagery? And two, how does it apply to Sardis? What is the meaning of the imagery and how does it apply to Sardis? First, what is the meaning of the imagery? What does he mean through this identity of the seven spirits and the seven stars, which it says that Christ has, he is having, he is holding. They are his. Well, the seven spirits of God, as we noted before, is a powerful picture of the fullness and the presence and the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a description of the Holy Spirit, albeit a unique description. Some would like to identify these with seven uh, key spirits or primary spirits that are before God who will bring out the message of Christ uh, throughout the rest of Revelation. Some of them want to hold these as unique beings before God who are yet created beings. But it can't be that for this simple fact, and we'll add to this, but for this simple fact, beginning in verse 4, that the message from God, the revelation from God to the church is from God in his fullness as a trinity. And it is the trinity that is identified in verses 4 and following in chapter 1. The messages from the Father, here identified as him who is and who was and is to come, and a description later applied also to the Son. Here it is a reference to God the Father. It is a message of revelation then from the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ, from the Father, in this case from the Spirit, and from the Son. It is a Trinitarian formula. 
There is no room there for a created being or beings. It is a unique way then to speak of the Holy Spirit. And we see this sort of distinction of seven in terms of, in, in reference to the Spirit, in the very message to the churches. There are the seven angels, of course, the seven stars that he holds in his hand. There is the message to the seven churches. But at the end of each message to the churches, what do we hear? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one Spirit says to the seven churches. The Spirit then is the power and the presence of Christ. He is the mediation of the message of Christ, of the presence of Christ, of the work of Christ to these churches. And that is the reason for the identification of seven. Of seven. And he uses this language in a couple of other places just to, to fill this out a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 5, and we've already looked at these. I'm only going to remind you. He has this heavenly vision that we're going to get to in probably, hopefully, a few months. He says, Out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And here he is drawing from imagery taken from Zechariah chapter 4, which speaks of the spirit as the power behind the rebuilding of the temple after the return of the nation of Israel from exile. In chapter 5, he says, and that the idea behind Zechariah is this, is that God is going to accomplish his work. God is going to build his temple. God is going to establish his people. And he's going to do it not by strength, not by might of the people themselves, but by his spirit, he says in Zechariah chapter 4. He is the power. He is the working force. He is the one who guarantees the work that he has promised to accomplish. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, and this is a vision of Christ, this is uh, the scene of Christ receiving the, uh, the, the scroll out of which the judgments will come. He says in verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, speaking of his power, of seven eyes, speaking of his omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And so the idea here just in summary is this. That the seven spirits of God represent the presence, the power, the all-knowing infinite glory of the risen Christ who is at one with the Spirit. Notice that he says he is having the Spirit. He also uses that in reference to the stars, which again, we already noted, were identified as the seven angels. So what is the idea here? The idea here is this, that Christ as the exalted Messiah, as the eternal Son of God, who is at one with the Father and with the Spirit, is the one who stands as above and the authority, the all-knowing Lord of the church. As the one who possesses the Spirit, he is the one who gives life. And you'll remember as possessing the Spirit, echoing the language of Jesus back in John chapter 15, when he says the Spirit will come, that he and the Father will send the Spirit, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And Christ is speaking this as the exalted Lord, as the exalted Lord, who, yes, is one with the Father and the Spirit by nature of his deity, by, nature of, by his very nature and essence as God, but is also as the God-man, the one in Acts 2.33 who received the Spirit and pours it out on the church and works through the Spirit His will among His church and among His people on the earth. And so it here speaks of his, of his divine glory as the exalted Messiah, the one who has the possession 
of everything related to the good and the ruling of his church. And the Spirit is the divine presence and the power executed through, in this case, the angels, the message, who are themselves empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, how does this imagery then particularly apply to Sardis? Well, in this present passage, the point of emphasizing this reality is to declare to the church this, and this is something we'll see unfold before us, is that he who speaks knows the condition of the church, but he who speaks is also the only one who can give life. He's the only one who can give life. He's the only one who can change the condition of this spiritually dead church. He is the one they are to look to. And this is evident in his following words where he says, He is the one who holds, has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this is the message is what? And this is the second point, his confrontation with sin. The end of verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This is one of the most sobering statements in all of Scripture, isn't it? It's one of the most sobering statements. It's one of the most solemn statements, the most grave statements in all of scripture. There are others like it, but this stands in there with them. And it highlights one of the most serious themes of scripture, which I already mentioned, and that's this, that it is entirely possible to have a form of religion, even great religious commitment, and not know God, and to not be delivered from sin and wrath. It's entirely possible to be in that condition. In the words of Jesus, it's entirely possible for an individual or for a group or for a church or any gathering of professing Christians to think they are alive when Christ's assessment is that they are dead. To think that they have salvation when in fact they do not. Let's notice first then a devastating reversal. It's a devastating reversal. And the reversal is this, that reality is not as they think it is. They think they're alive, and Christ says they are dead. It is the exact opposite of what they're resting in and their confidence is in as he speaks to this church. Now, let's notice here. He says, you have a name that you are alive. You have a name that you are alive. Their name as being alive is attached here to their works. He begins by saying, I know your works. I know what your works are, and I know what those works are that in the minds of others give them the idea that you are alive. He's going to address later, and we'll look at this next week. Your works, however, are incomplete in the sight of my God. They are not fulfilled. They have not been completed. They have not come to the fullness of what they need to be to demonstrate the reality of spiritual life. But they are nonetheless activity among this body of believers that give them a name. What's the idea of name? Well, you're familiar with this, I'm sure, but just as a reminder, in the biblical world and in other places and cultures in uh, in our day, the idea of a name is that the name says something essential or representative about that person. It says something essential or representative about that person. Of course, we see many, many, many examples of that in Scripture. Let me just remind you of a few. In Genesis 3.20, Eve uh, got her name because she was the mother of all the living. In Genesis 17.5, Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham because he was going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Exodus 3.15, Yahweh 
is the name of God. He says, it is my memorial name. It is my covenant name. It is my memorial name to all generations. First Kings 9.3, God says that he has consecrated this house. That is the temple of Solomon. He says, what you have built by, and I says, he's consecrated it by putting my name there forever. We, we understand that when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray consistent with who he is, with his work, with all the truth that we know about him. So here, to say that they have a name is to say this. Essentially, it is to say that they have, as a body of believers, a reputation as being alive in Christ, of having spiritual vitality, spiritual life. That is their reputation among others who look at this church, and they say, in this church, we have a witness to the work of the gospel in them, that they are spiritually alive, that they belong to Christ, that they are Christians. Indeed, the implication here is that in such, such is this name that others might even look to them in some ways as an example and see something in them even worth emulating. Presumably, this evaluation is coming from other professing Christians. It's unlikely that you would find such a commendation on the lips of pagans that they would even care or understand to say that. And so these are other Christians then who he's saying, I recognize as the risen Lord that other churches and that other people look at you and they say that you are Christians, that you are Christians indeed, that you are truly Christians. And the assumption behind this assessment, there are several, is one, that they are outwardly professing Christians, that they are acknowledging Christ, that they are saying the name of Christ, that they are identifying themselves as distinct from their surrounding culture as being Christians. The assumption behind this is that they are engaged in in some degree of what appears to be good works. In other words, there is some activity. There is some effort that they're putting into that profession. There is something that they are doing. Thirdly, it assumes that they have the means of apparent, apparent blessing. Apparently, their wealth and their ease and their lack of conflict was as well a testimony to others looking at them and thinking, well, they must have God's blessing. And of course, as already noted, they have the affirmation of other Christians. That sounds like a lot of credibility, doesn't it? Professing Christ, some degree of activity and works, supposedly in the name of Christ, apparent means of blessing and wealth and prosperity and comfort and lack of conflict and persecution. And none of that is mentioned in this letter as within previous churches. And they have the affirmation of other Christians as well. Pretty high commendation. Pretty high commendation. But here's the reversal. Outside of all of that, the evaluation and the only evaluation that matters and the only voice that matters is that of Christ. What does God say? What does God say? And Christ says this, but you are dead. Literally, it could be how you are dead. The idea is but you are dead. The contrast here is but you are dead. So the evaluation of Christ is exactly the opposite of the evaluation of men. Let that sink in. The evaluation of Christ is exactly the opposite of the evaluation of men. It reminds us of that principle of 1 Samuel 16, 7, in the choosing of David by the prophet Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, and we can remember the brothers of David were quite impressive. They were older. They were strong. They had accomplished more in their life. 
They had an appearance of kingly material, not David, a little shepherd boy, the youngest of the family, but God says, this is the one I have chosen. You're not evaluating by my standards. You're looking at only what you can see, but I see something that you can't. And that's the idea, that's a principle that runs throughout God's dealing with men. But now what exactly is he saying here? What exactly is he saying? Well, he says they are dead. Necros, that's the term. It just means dead. That's what it means. We get, you know, our term from that, an English term. Here he says, you are that. You are dead. And here it is the sense of what Jesus said even to the crowds in Matthew 8, 22 when he was giving the call to discipleship and he was saying, he was calling those, the, the crowds to follow him and, and one of them said, hey, first let me go back and bury, you know, my parents. And, and Jesus says, you allow what? The dead to bury their own dead. You follow me. The spiritually dead to bury their physically dead. You have no dealings with them if you follow me. But of course, the passage that we most immediately think of, and rightly so, is Ephesians chapter 2. This is the kind of death that he's talking about. When, G, when Paul's describing the church outside of Christ, before they were in Christ, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And he ends that little section there by saying, and you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what he's saying of this church. That's your overall character. We'll note later that there are some signs of life. That's found in the call to repentance and some who haven't soiled their garments. But as a whole, he's saying you are, you are dead. You are not what you appear to be. Now, if we say that and if Christ says that, what exactly is he saying? What, what exactly is he assigning to this church as the characteristics of spiritual death? Let me list out for you several. These are all drawn from Ephesians. But what is he saying? He's saying that as a church, having the name that you are alive, you are in fact excluded from the life of God, just as the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 4.18. You are excluded from the life of God. Whatever you have in you that's convincing others of your life is not convincing before God. He's saying you're excluded from the life of God. He's telling them, secondly, that you are ignorant of the true knowledge of God. You have some name, you have some reputation that you are a representative of God, but God is saying you're dead. You are ignorant of the true knowledge of God. Again, Ephesians 4.18. He's saying this to this church, that ultimately, whatever activity you're doing, you in your state of spiritual death are dominated by sin's deceitfulness and lust. You're dominated by sin's deceitfulness and lust. We can surmise what some of that is. You'll note what made the others stand out who did belong to him as they had not soiled their garments. But most of the church had. They had soiled their garments. They had adopted the ungodly aspects of their culture and they were evident in the church. He's saying by this that though you are a church and you have the name that you are alive, you are enslaved and dominated to the deceitfulness of sin and its lust. He's saying this. He's saying that even though you have a name that you are alive, you are inwardly influenced and manipulated by Satan's lie rather than the Spirit of God through the Word. That's what he's saying. You're dead. He's saying what motivates you, what kind of sets your direction for ministry, what kind of frames the, your self-consciousness, what kind of gives you peace in your heart at night is not from the Spirit of God. It's not from the Spirit of God. 
It's not from the word of God being affirmed in you. It is, as he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, from the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. It is a spirit that's influencing you not to walk as kingdom citizens of Christ, but to walk according to the course of this world. He's saying that's who you are. That's how I see you. And then he notes, lastly, to say that they are dead is to say this, that they are under God's wrath. They are under God's wrath. And you'll remember again in Ephesians, that's how he ends those who are dead. You're children of wrath. Children of wrath. Now, understand, he's speaking to the church. And he's not just speaking to any church. He's speaking to a church that is affirmed by other Christians as being alive. He is speaking to a church that has wealth, that has prosperity, that has ease, that has a name, that has works, and he says, you are dead. So that's the contrast. That's the great reversal. They have a name that they are alive, they are forgiven by God, they are loved by God, they are going to heaven, that they are affirmed in themselves all the promises of God that they believe they apply to them, and Christ says, no, they don't. It's just the opposite of that. As a matter of fact, he defines the final end of this condition for those who die in this condition. It's described at the very end of the book in Revelation 20, verse 14. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now again, this highlights, and this is why we're spending a little bit of time here, this highlights an extremely important reality that we must grasp, and many of us do, but we must be reminded of nonetheless, that we must grasp as Christians to be discerning about ourselves and about the world around us, to be discerning about the gospel. If there is one thing that is lacking in the church of God, it is discernment. It is discernment. It is the ability to divide between truth and error, right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, and to be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. So again, the reality is this, that it is possible, indeed it is the reality for many, to have a form of religion, of Christian identity or commitment, even affirmation of others while being devoid of God's life and salvation. Let's just consider that a bit more. Isn't this precisely what Christ confronted with Israel when he came to earth in his ministry in the Gospels? This is precisely what Christ confronted in first century Judaism and what it had become before God. And again, remember, when Christ showed up to first century Judaism, they were, and at that point, through over 1,400 years of written scripture, the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God, God's representatives on earth. Paul said of the great glory they had, you'd receive the oracles, you'd receive the promises, you receive the covenant. You are a unique people of God of all of the earth. They had received all of that. And yet, they were without God's salvation. Listen to this, and this would fit as well, of course, to the church at Sardis and many today. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, he says this, he's giving an illustration, and he says this, now when the unclean, of the condition of the, the nation at that time, he says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and in order. 
Verse 45, then it goes and it takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. What is he saying to the nation of Israel at that point? Well, he's, he's given a big picture of their history. Before the exile, before the split of the nation and God sent the northern tribes into exile through the kingdom of Assyria and then later the southern tribe of Judah under Babylon and destroyed the temple. What marked the history of God's people was their constant slide into the idolatry of the nations surrounding. The very nations they were to separate from, they kept adopting and imbibing their religious practices because of their sin. And so God finally had had enough, and we understand the history of Israel. The great dividing point is that God destroyed them. As we said, the northern tribes he took away and then decimated the temple. And then he destroyed everything in the most horrific kind of way. And then he put them in exile for 70 years, and then he brought them back into the land, and he reestablished them in the land. And in the history of Israel, one thing they never in the same way fell into again was idolatry. They didn't. As a matter of fact, it's at that point of exile, beginning even with the ministry of Nehemiah, that we begin to have this unique scribal class that developed that that ended up being instrumental in the preserving of the Old Testament scriptures. We had what developed the traditions that we see Christ addressing in there. And these were traditions that were meant to be a hedge around the law, a hedge of protection. They were these rules come up by rabbis and teachers that were meant to keep the people from sinning against the law of God. This all developed after that. They never again fell into that same kind of idolatry. And Jesus is saying, here, I'm coming into this nation, a nation that is presumably on the outside so righteous. Here you have these elite Pharisees, these people who have devoted themselves to the word of God, who are the, the, the greatest influence religiously among the consciousness of self-first century Judaism. He says, yeah, you clean the house. There's not idols that he had to address as he did in Ezekiel sitting in the most holy place within the temple. That's not there. It hasn't been there for a long time. You've cleaned that up. Even at this time, you are rejoicing in the building of Herod's temple, this glorious structure. You're fastidious in all of the obedience to the law and all of the traditions and the rules. But you have one thing lacking. And he says that's spiritual reality. That's spiritual reality. And not only are you lacking spiritual reality unoccupied, there is not the presence of the reality of God there as a nation. You are in a state that is even worse than before. And he identifies that as saying that there's demons who bring along others and they're even worse than at first. And such it is the nation and the condition of the nation that ended up, of course, crucifying their Messiah and that God ended up once again destroying the temple in 70 AD, wiping it off. He's saying because you have a form of religion, you have a name that you are the representatives and the people of God, but you are empty, you are vacuous, you are vain, you are dead, essentially. And such was their condition And Jesus is confronting that consistently throughout, throughout, throughout the Gospels. In Luke 16, 15, he tells the leaders, he says, what is is honorable to men, what is praised among men, is detestable in the sight of God. And this is precisely, we go, well, that's Israel, we're the church. Well, Jesus is talking to the church. And he says this, 
in 2 Timothy. Let me just give you one other illustration of this. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is serving to as a shepherd over in Ephesus. And he's writing to him in his second letter, his last letter. And he says to Timothy, he's identifying in chapter 3, the condition of the church. Yes, this fits different times throughout the history of the church, but he's particularly even focusing on the increase of these realities in the last days. And how does he describe it? He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brooders, haters of good, uh, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then, shockingly, what is the next statement that he says? Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Holding to a form of godliness, even though they have denied its power. What does he mean by a form of godliness? They are holding to some form, an outward appearance of Christianity and some kind of commitment to Christ. They are professing Christians who appear to be dedicated to doing things for and in the name of Christ. They speak of him and supposedly they speak for him, but they have no real knowledge of him. And look at what he says. He defines that in this way. They have denied its power. They have denied its power. In what way does a church who has a name and it's alive but is dead have a form of godliness but deny its power? What power is he talking about here? Is he talking about the power to do miraculous things? Well, we know that's not true. He warns about that in Matthew chapter 7. Is he talking about the power to do great gifts and speak in tongues and do all of that? Well, we know that can't be the case. He rebukes that in 1 Corinthians 13 and says that's empty. You're doing it for the, it's nothing. Even if you gave your body to be burned, if you don't have love, it's nothing. What kind of power is he talking about? What is the power of the gospel that they have denied? It is the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16, isn't it? And it is the power of God unto sanctification. It's the power of the gospel that saves and makes a people holy for Christ. A people he has purified For himself in Titus chapter 2. For good deeds. They've denied that kind of power. They want no spiritual riddance of sin. They want no conformity of their life to the truth. They have no humility that bows before the wonder of grace and seeks Christ. They merely want a form of religion. They don't want its power. It's sanctifying power. They're like Simon the magician. You remember, he wanted power to what? He wanted power to do great things and to make people receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. He didn't want the power to be holy. He wanted the power to gain from the gospel for his own prosperity and his own wealth. And Peter says, you're in the gulls of bitterness. Pray that you could be forgiven. It's not the kind of power that men think of. It's the power to make holy In other words, if we want to put this in theological terms, it's men who want justification but no sanctification. They want to be declared right before God and forgiven of their sin and inheritors of the heavenly reward, but they want no holiness. They want no obedience in their life. They want only what serves themselves. And that is exactly what is the warning constantly to the church. Let me just give you one Briefly, I want to mention this. 
He says in Hebrews chapter 10, what is the gospel? What does it do? He says this but in verse 10 of Hebrews 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Him who bore our sin, we have been set apart unto him. We have in our position been sanctified through Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time. Who? Who is he perfected for all time? He says those who are being sanctified is the better translation. Those who are being sanctified, who are in the process of being sanctified. And he hits it home in chapter 12 when he says this, Pursue peace with all men, verse 14, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You can't separate those two things. You can't separate them. So let me just wrap it up with two points. And the first one is this. How do we create this kind of reality? How is this kind of reality created? If the Spirit of God works through the gospel of God and the truth of God to create the people of God and to preserve the people of God and to sanctify the people of God, how can a church that names the name of Christ and supposedly has the gospel in some sense receive this kind of censure from Christ, this kind of condemnation, confrontation that you are dead? Let me give you a variety of ways. What are a variety of ways that we can create this kind of environment? I'm going to list off, I think I came up with eight. Here's a few. One is when we equate emotions with spiritual reality and true worship, rather than sincere repentance, obedience, and love for the truth. When we create a church environment where spirituality is equivocated, with feeling weepy at songs and hyped up and emotion. We create an environment where you can have a name that you are alive and dead because the music is loud, the seats are full, the preacher is entertaining, the emotions are felt, but there is no life for many. A way that that practice plays itself out too is to separate doctrine from devotion, and that can work both ways, of course. It is to say that spiritual reality is having strong feelings about Christ, not not being discerning, not having the word of God do its work in me, as he said to the Thessalonians, receiving it as the word of God which does its work in you. Not that way. And so it can happen where it's, it's all about devotion, but doctrine is what divides. Doctrine is boring. Doctrine is what kills my spirituality. But it can happen the other way where it's all about doctrine and there's no devotion. It can go either way. That's what he got on to Ephesus for. But in either case, here it is, equating, you can equate emotions with spiritual reality and true worship. That creates a church that is going to be filled with dead people. Secondly, when we present Christ as the Savior and the solution to our felt needs rather than from sin and condemnation and God's just wrath against us. When we see Christ as our great psychologist in the sky rather than the one who reconciles us to God, or God reconciling us to himself. That means when the gospel is presented as the one who will fix your depression, fix your anxiety, fix your problems in life, your marriage, your friendships, your relationships, all of the negative things about your personality, Christ is the one who will change all of that. What someone is saved with, they're saved to, right? And so when we present a Christ that's merely the solution to our felt needs, our problems in life, our trials and our tribulations, then we create an environment where Christ is trusted to fix our lives, but not to atone for our sin and not to create worshipers. 
Thirdly, when we preach a gospel as moralism, when the very end of the gospel is becoming a better person, a better you, that creates an environment where there's a name that you can be alive but dead. When it equates moralism with the fruit of the gospel rather than an obedient, self-denying faith from a grateful love for a Redeemer who rescued us from our sin. There's a lot of ways that that can happen. You know, what is the whole message can be about being a Christian is being a better employee. It's being a better husband. Here's five ways to fix your life. Here's three ways to improve your attitude, so on and so forth. But there's no gospel in that. It's not that those things are by themselves wrong. It's just what they don't say. Number four, when we proclaim a gospel that makes man and his salvation the greatest end and good of God's purposes. That's huge. Again, there's a variety of ways this can come out. It is to proclaim a gospel that makes man and his salvation, in other words, man's salvation, the greatest end and good of God's purposes in this universe. It is where the gospel makes much of you rather than you making much of God, to loosely quote a Piper quote. That was a, that was a good one. It is where the gospel is all about how valuable you are, how valuable you are that God would send his only son to save even you. The greatest delight in his heart is to look at you and to watch at you and to say that you are mine. That's his greatest delight. In other words, to make the focus of the gospel you being the object of God's love because of your worth rather than God and Christ as the object of your love because of his infinite worth and glory because of the wonder that he would save such a wretch like you. You know, even in some of the hymnals, they change that language. They say, rather than save a wretch like me, have y'all heard this? It says, uh, save someone like me. Uh, Robert Shuler, I remember reading years ago, defines sin as this way, and I forget the title of his book. But anyway, he defines sin in this way. Anything that robs you of your self-esteem. Anything that robs you of your self-esteem. Well, that was said more crassly, but that is certainly what is behind much of what we see happening under the name of Christianity. And so that's a way to create this kind of, this kind of environment. Number five, when you talk exclusively or almost exclusively about God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's compassion, God's mercy, God's kindness in heaven, but not about holiness, wrath, judgment, and hell. If you ask most Christians, it would almost be as if Jesus never said a negative word, never said a disparaging word. It would almost be as if, if Jesus never said that condemnation was going to come to the world and justice to be executed upon all those who are outside of him. It was as if he never said that. For many Christians, you could take all of the negative things out of the Bible as they would say negative, and they'd never know they were missing. They wouldn't even be aware of it. Or even worse, when they are confronted with those kind of truths too that form the backdrop to his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion, they are offended and angry. That's how to create this kind of environment. And again, it's not that those things that aren't true, it's just they have no substance if they're not given in their full understanding of who God is and his nature. Number six, to make faith merely intellectual belief or saving faith, only believing in Christ as Savior without submission of heart to Him as Lord. In other words, to separate the desire for salvation from the desire for holiness is how you could say it. There's free grace. Sometimes it goes under that. The non-lordship, you'll hear these different kind of things. Easy grace, cheap grace. I read a book by a professor years ago, a couple of them actually, uh, uh, out at Dallas, and this isn't to say everyone there, but that's where he was from. 
Uh, his name is Zane Hodges. And he makes the argument that faith is only intellectual. You only have to believe the facts of the gospel. And as a matter of fact, he argued this, that someone could even later deny Christ and apostatize and still be saved and will be in heaven. That's what he argued. And he says if you deny that, if you deny that in any way, then you are adding works to the gospel and you're preaching another gospel. So this is how they do it. You believe in Christ as Savior, and once Christ is your Savior, then you should live for him as Lord. That's how they do it. It's make Jesus Lord of my life. We don't make Jesus anything. We yield to him. And that's incumbent in faith. We believe in a whole Christ who is both a Savior, who is also the Lord. And so the message of the Bible is that there is repentant faith. We'll consider that in a minute. Let me just mention quickly to others. How do we create this? When we minimize or remove the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture as the foundation for all of ministry and life and the knowledge of God so that Scripture is distorted, misapplied, or ignored. How ignorant the church is in many of its places of the Word of God, of Scripture. Absolutely ignorant of doctrine. Absolutely ignorant of how to connect one passage of Scripture to another passage of Scripture how to think about God, how to approach the Word of God, how to have discernment in their life. There's nothing more than believe in Jesus, be saved, and try to be a good person. That can create this kind of environment. And lastly, to define church and salvation in terms of tradition or heritage or performance rather than the primacy of worshiping in spirit and truth. So all of these are ways to create a church like Sardis, to have a name that you are alive, but you are dead, to have church activity but not reality but the reality is this that the church that is alive in truth the church that does know God is the church where the message of God's scripture forms the foundation of that that's what Peter said you were brought forth by the word of truth you were brought forth by the word of truth, that eternal word, that eternal word that stands even though flesh being like grass and its glory like the flower of grass withers and fades away, but the word of God endures forever. And it is the church that preaches the gospel based on this eternal word. He says, this is the word which was preached to you. It is the message of the gospel that says the great end of all of the universe and the, great, great, and the highest good of all of the universe is that God would be glorified in his works in Christ. And that that glory of God in his works in Christ would provide the deepest and most profound joy to his image bearers who have been redeemed. Isn't that what Paul said? From him, through him, and to him be all things. To him be the glory. Why? Because he saved sinners and he judged those outside of his salvation. That's the message. So the glory of it is that we stand on the word of God, that the end of everything we do is to the glory of God, and we understand the condition of all men, and that we are under sin, that we are under condemnation because of our first head and representative, Adam, and we are redeemed and released from that condemnation only through the atoning work of Christ who stood as a substitute on the cross, who was an atonement for our sin, who was a propitiation of our sin, averting the wrath of God from us by bearing it in himself in his own body, bearing our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness 
that this Christ who stood in our place and bore our wrath and died for us is him who was buried according to the scripture, him who was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and him who ascended back to the right hand of the Father according to scripture where he received the glory and the authority as Lord of heaven and earth and over all of the nations and is building his church and will one day return. And we participate in this through repentance faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Receive Christ as he is in all of his glory and majesty as Lord and as Savior and as King and serve him faithfully. That is the gospel that God has provided salvation through the death and the resurrection of the Son and that we participate in this life by his sovereign work of regeneration that opens our eyes to see his glory and then with that comes the gift of faith to embrace him and to turn to him and to follow him. That's the church that's alive, and that's what we want to be faithful to. And that's what we remember as we come now to the Lord's table. That's what we're professing. We're professing that we are the people of God, not by our works, not by our tradition. We are professing that as the people of God, we are not the centerpiece of the universe, only in this sense that God saving us reflects back his glory and his wisdom and his majesty and his holiness and his wonder. We know that when we take this, we stand as trophies, not of our value, but of the infinite value and glory of Christ. And we together take this as an expression of our worship, our trust in him. And that's why the table is for believers. It is not a converting ordinance. It is an expression of worship of those who know Christ. So if you are outside of Christ and you do not know him and you do not see the reality of his life in you, the table is not for you this morning. If you are a believer who has trusted Christ but is unwilling to deal with sin and walking rebelliously and presumptuously in sin, the table is not for you until there's repentance. If you have unrepented of discord in relationships, he says, leave your altar offering at the altar and go and make reconciliation. But the table is for those who recognize our sin, who have trusted in Christ to forgive us, who stumble and sometimes stumble badly and frustratingly, but who come recognizing that our only hope is in Christ, who come wanting to walk in righteousness though we realize our weakness to do so. For those, the table is a reminder for us to say the price of our sin has been paid. The gift of salvation has been given. There is one offering for all time for us and that offering has been made and we have received it and we have been reconciled to God and we want to walk with him as the body of Christ and we want to anticipate his return to take us home. And so with those things, let the men pass out the elements and meditate on them, confessing sin but worshiping Christ for his sacrifice for us and then we'll take it together. So the men will pass out. And then Rachel, thank you. Uh, As they're coming forward, actually, let me pray just to close this to introduce our time. Father, thank you for... Your word, and and Lord, this is a sober message, but it is one we need to hear. It is one we need to hear so that we can think rightly because it's reality. But Lord, we thank you as well that you give us this message, one, so that we can, who know you, can delight in your saving work and grace in our life, that you have rescued us. And so that those who fall under the condemnation of Sardis could be awakened and made aware of their truth, of their condition, and turn to you by the grace of your spirit and embrace Christ. And Lord, now as we come to this table, we who know you, we pray that you would 
Fill our hearts, Holy Spirit, with joy in the gospel, delight in Christ, and renewed and refreshed commitment to walk with you by your spirit. Amen.